true religion confronts earth with heaven and brings eternity to bear upon time. Now, that's the opening line of the book, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, which is a book that we're all very familiar with by now. But I, I think it, it, it perfectly sums up the reality of what happens when the kingdom of God breaks in. I think it perfectly sums up the, the, that reality. When the kingdom of God breaks in, the status quo, the, the way things are in the world and in our lives cannot remain unchanged. When the kingdom of God breaks in, the way things are are brought into stark contrast with the way that God intends them to be. True religion confronts earth with heaven and brings eternity to bear upon time. You know, Jesus himself taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Basically instructing us to pray that that which is true in the heavenly presence of God would also be true on earth. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus begins his entire ministry preaching the gospel, proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come near. In the prologue of John, chapter 1, verse 14, also of that, um, it says that the word of God has become flesh and it has dwelt among us. In the Nicene Creed, which we just spent the last few weeks uh, going through that Rollin has, had taught us so well about, uh, we say this great line of hope, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. Now, I think it was actually very opportune timing that we took the last few weeks to study the Nicene Creed. Currently, in our liturgical calendar, we're in the season of Epiphany. And what Epiphany is, it's a time for us to set aside, to have our eyes opened or maybe even reopened to the reality of Christ's identity and to be reminded of who Jesus has been revealed to be. Now, maybe you're here this morning and your eyes have never been open to who Jesus is. Maybe you're here this morning and this Jesus guy is, is, a, is a mystery to you. Maybe you're here today and you are a, a, a longtime Christian, but the things of life have distracted you and have clouded your vision. Well, wherever you are this morning, my prayer for all of us is that if nothing else, we would leave here today having seen Jesus rightly. Now, I know that that's a very big prayer, but I believe it's a scriptural prayer. I believe it's the prayer, I believe it's exactly where our passage that we're going to look at this morning wants to take us. And I believe that it's what God is always wanting to do in our lives, to, to reveal himself more to us in new and living ways. So before we open the scriptures, let me, let me bring this introduction kind of back full circle. Look, we know, we learned over the last couple weeks that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. We know that by him and in him and through him, all things exist and hold together. That comes from the passage that my daughter so beautifully just read. We know that Christ is the incarnate God who came down from heaven to dwell and dwelt among us. We know, therefore, that he is king over all. Well, wherever the king goes, so goes the kingdom. So goes the authority of the kingdom. That's why Jesus can say whenever he comes near, he can rightly say that the kingdom has come near. In Jesus, the kingdom of heaven breaks in. Whenever one kingdom, however, 
tries to invade another kingdom, there's going to be a confrontation. There's going to be conflict, right? Rulers and authorities don't have a history of yielding territory very easily. And so in our passage today, what we're going to look at is we're going to see this very thing play out. Jesus confronts earth with heaven. But however, I want to encourage you not to think of it, that not to think of the inbreaking of the kingdom as some type of colonialistic takeover of, of a foreign region. That's not what's happening. Jesus already owns everything. Everything is already his. What we're going to see this morning is Jesus returning to what is his. Where he should find submission, he finds rebellion. It's a futile rebellion, but it's a rebellion nonetheless. In the passage we're going to look at from Mark this morning, we see the beginning of the king returning and setting things right. When the kingdom breaks in, now there's implications for both the entire cosmos and for the kingdoms that we try to set up in our own lives. When the king arrives in all his kingdom authority, it's an amazing thing. And that's going to be the question for us today, is are we amazed at Jesus' kingdom authority? So if you will, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 21 through 28. It's the gospel passage that Fred read just a little bit ago. And while you're turning to Mark chapter 1, verses 21, let me just kind of set the scene for you so we can kind of see what's going on. Mark begins his entire gospel telling us that the purpose of his gospel is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. He then goes on and tells us in really not a lot of detail about Jesus' baptism, followed by his confrontation with Satan in the wilderness, followed by Jesus' calling of the first disciples. It only takes about 10 verses to get through all of that. He then tells us that after he calls the first few disciples, that he goes into the region of Galilee proclaiming the gospel. Well, as he's going through the region of Galilee, he's proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom. Jesus does what any good observant first century Jew would do of his day. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And that's where we find him now in verse 21. Read with me. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So in the synagogues of the day, or of the day uh, when Scripture was read, all men were invited to participate in the discussion of the text. Uh, we see this, in, we see this in, in several places. And so Jesus teaching in a synagogue would not really have been a very extraordinary thing. However, what was amazing was the way that he was teaching. Because as Mark tells us, he taught as one who had authority. Now notice, again, Mark does not like to give a lot of details. And so he doesn't actually tell us what he was teaching. Although I think from the context, we can probably take a pretty good guess Back in verse 14, it says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God has come near. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, Capernaum was a town in the territory of Galilee on kind of on the northwest region of it. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to believe that his teaching included something along that line. 
Perhaps his teaching included something like what we see in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Luke details a time when Jesus is teaching in another synagogue right before he tells his version of, of this particular event. But in that time, Luke says that Jesus opens up a scroll of Isaiah and he reads this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after he finishes, he closes the scroll and he looks at him and he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Basically saying that he was the one that God has sent to do these very things. Proclaim liberty to the captives. Perhaps Jesus was doing one of his famous, uh, you have heard it said, but I tell you type of sermons. Lots of speculation, obviously. Mark doesn't tell us exactly what he says. And honestly, that's because the content really was only secondary to the manner. So Mark tells us he taught with authority and everyone was amazed. Now the word for amazed, your translation may say astonished. That particular word has the connotations of, of actually being overwhelmed. It actually even has a connotation of fear or panic. This was not Jesus. Jesus was not entertaining the crowd by just some well-crafted speech. Jesus was not giving a TED Talk. He was not wowing them with his knowledge. Jesus was teaching them in a way that everyone understood that something new was taking place. They didn't fully understand it if they ever understood anything at all, but they knew that whatever was going on was something completely different. I mean, think about it. Why wouldn't it be? Here is Jesus the Logos of God, the very Word of God, who, as John tells us in his gospel, was in the beginning with God and is God, and that it was by him and through him that all things were made. Creation itself came into existence by his very Word, and so here we have the Word of God standing in their midst, again, speaking words. I believe a new creation is beginning. Earth is being confronted by heaven. Were they amazed? Yeah, I would think so. The question is, are we amazed? Are we amazed at Jesus, uh, at Jesus, the authority of Jesus who brings the kingdom to bear on the places of the world and in our lives where the reality of the kingdom is not yet present? Because in Jesus, they become present. Now, the crowds might not have completely understood the significance of the moment, but there was one in the story who certainly did. Verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Who is this man? Where did he come from? Had he been there all along? Did the rest of the synagogue knew that he, know that he was possessed? This is another one of those times where I wish Mark might have been a little bit or would have been a little bit more descriptive. But again, for Mark, the main point is that this man had an unclean spirit. Now, your translation may say evil spirit. If you have an older translation, it may even say demon. All of that's in view. Basically, what we have here is an unclean, evil, demonic entity that has taken control of this 
man. And notice that Mark is setting up a contrast here between the unclean evil spirit and Jesus who is the Holy One. Now, typically, it is thought that whatever is unclean cannot come into the presence of that which is holy. And yet, here you have this unclean spirit being confronted with the very presence of God in Jesus. This unclean spirit knows it's being confronted by a greater authority because of the way that it responds. Now, listen to his words. It says, what have you to do with us? Now, that particular line actually shows up in multiple places in the Old Testament. And it's always found in, uh, in, in the context of a confrontation. It suggests, it's a way of suggesting that two authorities, two rival authorities, really have no relationship with each other. And it's acknowledging that the one authority is stepping into another authority's territory and that an unwanted conflict is about to take place. However, it's actually the second part of that unclean spirit's uh, confession there that is actually the more confrontational because the unclean spirit names Jesus by name. He names Jesus by name. He says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, in the Old Testament, naming something was actually a way of taking authority over something. Think about that. Heads of households name their children. In the garden, God names the humans and tells Adam to name the animals as a way of taking authority and dominion over them. So what we have here, the point of this passage, is not that the demon is making a Christological confession. Now, what he says is definitely true, but it's not the Christological confession that's the purpose. What you have is an unclean spirit trying to usurp the authority of Jesus and to take an authority that it does not have. You see, in Jesus, the kingdom is breaking in, and there's a very real and necessary threat to all other false authorities. Now, I want to highlight kind of two aspects of this particular conflict that I believe are in view here. One aspect is that there is a cosmic dimension to this conflict. The second aspect is that there is a personal dimension to this conflict. So first, let me talk about the the cosmic nature of this conflict, if I can. When you read that statement by the unclean spirit, notice the pronouns of what the demon says. Something that seems relatively insignificant actually holds a lot of significance. What he says this, he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And then immediately he goes on, he says, I know who you are. What's he suggesting here? He says, I don't think that, that there's more than one demon in view. I think that, that the context says that there's only one demon possessing this one man. This is not the Gezerine demoniac that was possessed by legion, the, the many demons. So who is this us that he's talking about? Who is this us that he's asking Jesus if he has come to destroy? I think it's this. I think it's simply the entire host of demonic forces that have been in rebellion against God since they tried to usurp God's authority and were cast out of heaven and down to earth. Let me stop here for just a second, if I can, because talking about demons 
is kind of a funny thing, isn't it? Talking about unclean spirits and demons sometimes sounds weird to our modern ears. We're not always very sure exactly what to do with them. Well, I'm just going to admit, I'm not going to give you an in-depth theology of demons this morning. But I do want to point to this. I want to say that unless we acknowledge their existence, we actually lose sight of what's actually happening in the world. Unless we acknowledge their existence, we will not see the world rightly. One theologian that I I like to quote, a guy by the name of Stanley Hauerwas, always says that unless we see the world rightly, we will not act in the world rightly. We have to really see what's going on. I also can't pass up a a chance to quote that great line from the movie, The Usual Suspects. (laughs) And you all know what I'm about to say, right? The the greatest trick the devil ever, ever pulled was to convince the world that he didn't exist. I heard some people saying that with me. Great, great line, right? Well, I, I think that there's a lot of truth in that, right? I think there's a lot of truth because if we forget what's actually going on behind the scenes, then we forget who our real enemy is and we forget who our real struggle is actually against. St. Paul in Ephesians chapter six says this. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is who we struggle against. And friends, when we forget that truth, then what do we do? We begin to fight amongst each other. We lose, we lose the ability to show mercy, to show forgiveness. We hold grudges. We draw lines. We segregate ourselves. We start fighting against each other. We, we begin to take sides in, in pointless political and, uh, and social debates. We try to make our side win at all costs. We get caught up in conflicts. We start to find our security and power and wealth, even war. When we do this, we contribute to the chaos in the world. And guess what? The enemy sits back and he just laughs. He just laughs at us. He just laughs at us. Why? Because at that point, he has succeeded in deceiving the church into acting just like the rest of the world, fighting against themselves, drawing divisions. He deceives us into submitting to lesser authorities, be they political, social, cultural, national, whatever. When we do that, the world fails to see what it's like when Jesus is king. They fail to see the reality of the kingdom. Now, friends, let me expand this further. When we see events play out on the the world historical stage, Christians of all people should be the ones who can see the most clearly what's actually going on. Remember St. Paul again in Corinthians. He calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. When Jesus is in the wilderness being confronted by Satan, Satan tempts him by telling him, he says, look, I have been given and I possess all authority over the nations of the world. I will give it to you if you bow down and worship me. Funny thing is, is that Jesus doesn't rebuke him for that. He's actually right about that. In some, in, at least in a sense, he's actually right about that. This is why the nations of the world really are so quick to persecute Christians. It's because we proclaim the presence of a kingdom or the kingdom of God in the midst 
of the nations, and it's a threat to the prince of the power of the air. It's also why we Christians have this kind of unique ability to show mercy, to extend forgiveness, and to offer prayers for the the, the very people who are persecuting us and killing us. Because Christians can see very clearly that the struggle is not against flesh and blood. The struggle is not against flesh and blood. But when we forget that and begin to believe that it is against flesh and blood, then we become just like the world and our witness suffers and the gospel, which is the only hope for the world, is not proclaimed. The church is the very real body of Christ. It is the body of the king and Where the kingdom goes, so goes the kingdom. And so the church should be the place where the kingdom of God is found in the midst of the kingdoms of the world. And the church is to be the place where Jesus' authority reigns, and in doing so, it shows the world that there is a better way. It shows the world what it looks like when Jesus is king. It's supposed to be a place where that which is true in heaven is also true on earth. Just as James writes, he says, In in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, true religion confronts earth with heaven. And our enemy is always trying to deceive us into acting just like the rest of the world. Our enemy tells us it's okay to let the world or some other ideology set the agenda for our lives. But friends, when we do that, all we're simply doing is just submitting to another authority. And it's not only damaging to us, but it's damaging to the rest of the world because the hope of salvation is then not held out. And we do that when we lose sight of what is actually going on behind the scenes. We lose sight of what's going on behind the scenes. The unclean spirit in this passage asked Jesus, he says, have you come to destroy us, Jesus of Nazareth? When the short answer to this is actually yes. That is the short answer to the question. Have you come to destroy us? Yes, it is. Hebrews chapter two, verses 14 through 15 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It is on the cross and through the resurrection that the power of Satan, the powers of Satan were dealt a defeating blow. We know this is true because we know the story. However, in this passage, That's not how Jesus actually answers, at least initially. What he says is this in verse 25. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread all around Galilee. You see, Jesus commands the evil spirit to be silent. And in doing so, what he's doing is he's reasserting proper authority over the demon. He commands him to come out, and the demon does. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see similar events. In particular, whenever we see an exorcism, the evil spirits always leave 
when, at Jesus' commands, but they always do so violently. There's, they always do so violently. I think there's a reason for this. Think of it this way. When an enemy knows it's defeated, there's usually one of two responses. One response is it just kind of waves the white flag. The other response, when an enemy knows it's defeated, it knows that it's going down, is to take down as many people as it can with them. And those are actually the most dangerous because at that point, strategy doesn't matter, rationing weapons doesn't matter. It knows it's going down and it just throws everything it has to try to take down as many people it can with it. I want to suggest to you that when we look at the world, you look at the turmoil, the chaos that's around us, maybe even the turmoil and, and chaos that's, that's in our lives when, we're, when, when it just seems like every time we turn around there's a new temptation or just something going wrong, that that's actually a moment to hope because it shows us the reality that our enemy is actually defeated, that our enemy is actually defeated. A Christian worldview looks at the turmoil in the world and it clings to Jesus for refuge because it knows that Jesus is victorious and it clings to the hope. It's why even in the midst of persecution, we can cling to hope. Because again, our, our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? Our struggle is against the powers and the authorities in the heavenly places that Jesus on the cross has already defeated. I said that there was a second dimension to this conflict, not just the cosmic dimension. The second dimension is more of a personal spiritual dimension. And it's easy for us to look at a passage like this and just focus on the cosmic dimensions because we love the drama. But I want us not to forget, though, that in this passage, there is an individual person whose life has been held captive by a spirit that has no authority to hold his life captive. That's how this plays out. Jesus comes on the scene. He speaks a simple word, and the man is set free. Jesus, who is the truth, speaks the words of truth, and what does the truth do? Sets us free. Peter confesses to Jesus, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. When Jesus speaks into our lives, we are given the words of eternal life. We're given the, the words of Zoe, the life of the age to come, the life of the kingdom. So when truth breaks in, what I want to suggest to you is that when truth breaks in, lies and deceitfulness in our lives and in the kingdoms that we set up in our lives cannot remain. When truth breaks in, it sets free those of us who are held captive by the deceitfulness of false authorities. So let me ask you, what in your life this morning are the things that need to be brought into submission to the authority that is found only in Jesus? Where are those places where you are held captive by false authorities? Where are those places in your lives where you need to hear the words of truth in the words of life that are spoken only by Jesus, who is the word of life, and you need those words to break in and to bring those things into your life into submission to Jesus. Those are false authorities, and they need to be brought into submission to Christ. Christ is the only true authority, and that is for our good. Now, too often we think of authority as simply just this power to kind of bark out orders, right? Powers to make others obey. 
that's not the purpose of Christ's authority. Now, he certainly has the, the power to, to command and to make people obey. He certainly does. But the power of Jesus' authority in this text is that he's able to come into places where people are in bondage and set them free and to bring them into the kingdom of freedom. Jesus shows us that, that the unclean spirit has no authority over the people whom he came to save. The unclean spirit has believed that it has authority over this man, and Jesus shows him that, no, he doesn't, that only Jesus has that right. The evil forces seek to control the world, and again, in Jesus, the kingdom shows up and says, no, no, the world and all that he made is his. All things have been put into subjection to Jesus. The world, our lives, and Jesus, the Lord, the one with authority, will not let that which belongs to him to be destroyed by another lesser false authority. That is a truth that we can hold on to in our lives. Jesus' authority is for our own good. When Jesus is king of our lives, that's when we thrive. It's when we thrive. It's when we, it's when we flourish. It's when we grow. But yet, when we let other lesser false authorities take the place of Jesus in our life, it only leads us back into bondage and captivity. And Jesus was the one who came to break free those who were in bondage and captivity. And Jesus breaks in and brings into submission the rebellious forces in the world and in the lives of his people. Jesus breaks in with, a, with authoritative words. So my question I want to leave you with this morning is, is Jesus the king and Lord of your life? Will you let Jesus break in so that you might experience, like the man in the synagogue, what it's like when earth is confronted with heaven? And what it's like when the freedom that is found in the reality of heaven becomes a true reality on earth and in your life. Are you amazed at Jesus' authority? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.